Hello and welcome to another episode of Tea and Old Books. We are currently reading 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea and we're nearing the end of the adventure, so let's continue reading and find out what happens next. Welcome back. Today is the 22nd of September and it's been raining for the last few days in Barcelona so I thought I would sit down and continue reading 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. But you'll be pleased to know that since the last episode I've done a little bit of research to answer some of the questions that we had in the last few episodes. Before I answer those though I'm going to talk about today's tea. So the tea today, I've gone back to the bird and blend teas yet again. These are probably the last days of using these teas as cold teas because the weather is getting colder, so I'm probably going to start having hot teas again. But today's tea is toffee chai. And I've put a photo of this tea up on Instagram. If you want to go and check out the Instagram, it is at tea underscore old books and that's where you will find photos of the tea which I mention in each episode from this point on along with other photos of tea and book related things we'll see okay so today is toffee chai and it's a rebus tea rooibos rooibos redbush tea I'm not really sure how to say that okay so the description says all of our favorite chai spices Delicately blended with cocoa and toffee notes. Naturally caffeine-free, this blend makes the perfect before-bedtime brew, with or without milk. Also great for children, as a slightly sweet, milky treat, but with zero sugar. Mmm, interesting. So I'm drinking this cold in my cold brew bottle that I have. Um, And it's, let's reach over, it's a sort of golden colour. Like most Redbush teas. Yeah, and it's slightly vanillary. Just, I mean, to be honest, it just tastes like Redbush tea. I can't really taste much toffee. So, I mean, it's nice. I like it. But it's not really giving me chai vibes. Maybe I need to make it with milk. Maybe that would help. But it's very nice. Alright, so. Today's episode, we are going to answer some questions that we had from before. So I did a little bit of research Um, before starting recording this very brief research on wikipedia so in last episode we had captain nemo had staked the south pole as his own so he's the first man to have gone there first person to have gone to the south pole successfully we had lots of measuring he was making sure they were definitely at the south pole and they were and now he's like staked his claim he's put a flag with his name on what his initials in the South Pole. He's the first man to reach the South Pole. And I was wondering, when was the first person to go to the South Pole? Because I don't really know much about polar exploration, even though it's a fascinating topic. Now, I did some research, and the first person, first man, to reach the South Pole, according to the internet, was Roald Amundsen. And I'm probably saying his name wrong. He was Norwegian. And he made it to the South Pole in 1911. Now, 
it's a bit unfair, I think, to say that he was the first man there because there were four other people who were there with him and I can't find their names. <laughs> I mean, I've only done brief research. I'll do more later. But just my brief forays, it just says Roald Amundsen and four other people. I mean, who are those people? Why is it? I mean, he, he was leading the exhibi- ex- exhibi- expedition. So he gets the title role. Much like Nemo had Monsieur Aranay, had Pierre, our narrator, with him. Pierre doesn't get a say in it. It's like whoever's there leading the mission and plants the flag, that's who gets their name down in history as the first person there. So Roald Amundsen was the first person. But I had clearly, like, I think I feel like in the back of my mind, I already knew this because five weeks after... Roald Amundsen, rather, was five weeks ahead of Robert Falcon Scott, famously known for having died trying to reach the South Pole. Um, So he was actually, at the same time, they were both going, and Roald made it there first, and he didn't discover that Scott and all of Scott's party had died whilst they were trying to make the same the same mission, which I guess kind of took away from his glory a little bit. The fact that all these other people had died. Anyway. And I feel like that's what's known, isn't it? Like, that's what we know. We know about Scott. Or maybe it's because I'm British and Scott was British. I'm suspecting that's probably what it is, actually. That I'm aware of Scott's failed mission more so than the successful Amundsen because I'm British and and that's that's the way our history goes. We focus on ourselves. So yeah, that was so I answered that question very successfully. So if you remember that Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea was written in was published in eighteen seventy. So this is far far, far before people went to the South Pole. So um Jules Verne is is very much the make correct? He's not correct. He's making the claim he in his story it works that Nemo is the first because nobody else has even been there at this point. So I imagine that probably this story was very exciting to read in 1870 before anyone has been to the South Pole. Like People don't even really know what's there. Mm. So I'm going to look more into this. But I also was trying to find out what morses were. So if you remember in the last episode, they saw some whales that they were referring to as morses. And I could not find out what these whales are. I mean, I imagine this must be like a 19th century term for a certain type of whale. Or even it could be a mistranslation. Because this book was written originally in French. And this is an English translation that probably is not the best of translations, would be my guess. Um, So I couldn't find what those were. So if anybody knows what they are, please email me and let me know. You can email me at toldbooks at gmail.com, please. What is, it? what is a Morse? So when I looked it up, all I found was all this really interesting stuff about whales using Morse code, which <laughs> whales don't use Morse code. But I think there was some things about like sending messages in Morse code and trying to disguise them as whale noises. That's my brief forays into it. That was all I could find with Morses and whales. I mean wasn't very wasn't very successful but let us carry on reading so we are now on episode wait no we're on chapter 14 no chapter 15 can't read my own handwriting we're on chapter 15 
of part two, and this chapter is called Accident or Incident. It's an interesting chap, interesting title because I would say that you could something could be both an accident and an incident. It doesn't seem like an either or situation. But we'll continue reading anyway and see what's about to happen. My guess was that their Ned Land is going to mess something up in this in this chapter. We'll find out. The next day, the 22nd of March, at six in the morning, preparations for departure were begun. The last gleams of twilight were melting into night. The cold was great. The constellations shone with wonderful intensity. In the zenith glittered that wondrous southern cross, the polar bear of Antarctic regions. The thermometer showed 120 below zero, and when the wind freshened it, was most biting. Flakes of ice increased on the open water. The sea seemed everywhere alike. Numerous blackish patches spread on the surface, showing the formation of fresh ice. Evidently, the southern basin, frozen during the six winter months, was absolutely inaccessible. What became of the whales in that time? Doubtless they went beneath the icebergs, seeking more practical seas. As to the seals and morses, pausing, the morses again! What's a morse? Maybe it's a type of seal? Ah, anyway, sorry, let's continue. As to the seals and morses, accustomed to live in a hard climate, they remained on these icy shores. These creatures have the instinct to break holes in the ice field and to keep them open. To these holes they come for breath. When the birds, driven by, away by cold, have emigrated to the north, these sea mammals remain sole masters of the polar continent. But the reservoirs were filling with water, and the Nautilus was slowly descending. At 1,000 feet, it stopped. Its screw beat the waves, and it advanced straight towards the north at a speed of 15 miles an hour. Towards night, it was already floating under the immense body of the iceberg. At three in the morning, I was awakened by a violent shock. I sat up in my bed and listened in the darkness when I was thrown into the middle of the room. The Nautilus, after having struck, had rebounded violently. I groped along the partition and by the staircase to the saloon, which was lit by the luminous ceiling. The furniture was upset. Fortunately, the windows were firmly set and had held fast. The pictures on the starboard side, from being no longer vertical, were clinging to the paper, whilst those of the port side were hanging at least a foot from the wall. The Nautilus was lying on its starboard side, perfectly motionless. I heard footsteps and a confusion of voices, but Captain Nemo did not appear. As I was leaving the saloon, Ned Land and Conseil entered. "'What is the matter?' said I, at once. "'I came to ask you, sir,' replied Conseil. "'Confound it!' exclaimed the Canadian. "'I know well enough. The Nautilus has struck, and judging by the way she lies, I do not think she will right herself as she did the first time in Torres Straits.' "'But,' I asked, "'has she at least come to the surface of the sea?' "'We do not know,' said Conseil. It is easy to decide, I answered. I consulted the manometer. To my great surprise, surprise, 
It showed a depth of more than 180 fathoms. What does that mean? I exclaimed. We must ask Captain Nemo, said Conseil. But where shall we find him? said Ned Land. Follow me, said I to my companions. We left the saloon. There was no one in the library. At the centre staircase, by the berths of the ship's crew, there was no one. I thought that Captain Nemo must be in the pilot's cage. It was best to wait. We all returned to the saloon. For twenty minutes we remained thus, trying to hear the slightest noise which might be made on board the Nautilus, when Captain Nemo entered. He seemed not to see us. His face, generally so impassive, showed signs of uneasiness. He watched the compass silently. Then the manometer and, going to the planisphere, placed his finger on a spot representing the southern seas. I would not interrupt him, but, some minutes later, when he turned towards me, I said, using one of his own expressions in the Torres Straits, An incident, Captain? No, sir. An accident this time. Serious? Perhaps. Is the danger immediate? No. The Nautilus has stranded? Yes. And this has happened how? From a caprice of nature, not from the ignorance of man. Not a mistake has been made in the working, but we cannot prevent equilibrium from producing its effects. We may brave human laws, but we cannot resist natural ones. Captain Nemo had chosen a strange moment for uttering this philosophical reflection. On the whole, his answer helped me little. May I ask, sir, the nature of this accident? An enormous block of ice, a whole mountain, has turned over, he replied. When icebergs are undermined at their base, by warmer water or reiterated shocks, their centre of gravity rises and the whole thing turns over. This is what has happened. One of these blocks, as it fell, struck the Nautilus, then, gliding under its hull, raised it with irresistible force, bringing it into beds which are not so thick, where it is lying on its side. But can we not get the Nautilus off by emptying its reservoirs, that it might regain its equilibrium? That, sir, is being done at this moment. You can hear the pump working. Look at the needle of the manometer. It shows that the Nautilus is rising, but the block of ice is floating with it, and until some obstacle stops its ascending motion, our position cannot be altered. Indeed, the Nautilus still held the same position to starboard. Doubtless it would right itself when the block stopped. But at this moment, who knows if we may not be frightfully crushed between the two glassy surfaces. I reflected on all the consequences of our position. Captain Nemo never took his eyes off the manometer. Since the fall of the iceberg, the Nautilus had risen about 150 feet, but it still made the same angle with the perpendicular. Suddenly a slight movement was felt in the hold. Evidently it was writing a little. Things hanging in the saloon were sensibly returning to their normal position. The partitions were nearing the upright. No one spoke. With beating hearts, we watched and felt the straightening. The boards became horizontal under our feet. Ten minutes passed. At last we have righted, I exclaimed. Yes, said Captain Nemo, going to the door of the saloon. But are we floating? I asked. Certainly, he replied, since the reservoirs are not empty, and when empty, the Nautilus must rise to the surface of the sea. We were in open sea, but at a distance of about ten yards, 
on either side of the Nautilus rose a dazzling wall of ice, above and beneath the same wall, above because the lower surface of the iceberg stretched over us like an immense ceiling, beneath because the overturned block, having slid by degrees, had found a resting place on the lateral walls, which kept it in that position. The Nautilus was really imprisoned in a perfect tunnel of ice more than twenty yards in breadth, filled with quiet water. It was easy to get out of it by going either forward or backward, and then make a free passage under the iceberg, some hundreds of yards deeper. The luminous ceiling had been extinguished, but the saloon was still resplendent with intense light. It was the powerful reflection from the glass partition sent violently back to the sheets of the lantern. I cannot describe the effect of the vulture rays upon the great blocks so capriciously cut, upon every angle, every ridge, every facet was thrown a different light according to the nature of the veins running through the ice, a dazzling mine of gems, particularly of sapphires, their blue rays crossing with the green of the emerald. Here and there were opal shades of wonderful softness, running through bright spots like diamonds of fire, the brilliancy of which the eye could not bear. The power of the lantern seemed increased a hundredfold, like a lamp through the lenticular plates of a first-class lighthouse. How beautiful, how beautiful, cried Conseil. Yes, I said, it is a wonderful sight. Is it not, Ned? Yes, confound it, yes answered Ned Land. It is superb. I am mad at being obliged to admit it. No one has ever seen anything like it, but the sight may cost us dear, and if I must say all, I think we are seeing here things which God never intended man to see. Ned was right. It was too beautiful. Suddenly a cry from Conseil made me turn. What is it? I asked. Shut your eyes, sir. Do not look, sir. Saying which, Conseil clapped his hands over his eyes. But what is the matter, my boy? I am dazzled, blinded. My eyes turned involuntarily toward the gas, but I could not stand the fire which seemed to devour them. I understood what had happened. The Nautilus had put on full speed. All the quiet luster of the light ice walls was at once changed into flashes of lightning. The fire from these myriads of diamonds was blinding. It required some time to calm our troubled looks. At last the hands were taken down. Faith, I should never have believed it, said Conseil. It was then five in the morning, and at that moment a shock was felt at the bows of the Nautilus. I knew that its spur had struck a block of ice. It must have been a false manoeuvre, for this submarine tunnel, obstructed by blocks, was not very easy navigation. I thought that Captain Nemo, by changing his course, would either turn these obstacles or else follow the windings of the tunnel. In any case, the road before us could not be entirely blocked. But, contrary to my expectations, the Nautilus took a decided retrograde motion. We are going backwards, said Conseil. Yes, I replied. This end of the tunnel can have no egress. And then? Then, said I, the working is easy. We must go back again and go out at the southern opening, that is all. In speaking thus, I wished to appear more confident than I really was, but the retrograde motion of the Nautilus was increasing, and reversing the screw, it carried us at great speed. It will be a hindrance, said Ned. What does it matter? Some hours, more or less, provided we get out at last. 
Yes, repeated Ned Land, provided we do get out at last. For a short time, I walked from the saloon to the library. My companions were silent. I soon threw myself on an ottoman and took a book, which my eyes overran mechanically. A quarter of an hour after, Conseil, approaching me, said, Is what you are reading very interesting, sir? Very interesting, I replied. I should think so, sir. It is your own book you are reading. My book? And indeed, I was holding in my hand the work on the great submarine depths. I did not even dream of it. I closed the book and returned to my walk. Ned and Conseil rose to go. Stay here, my friends, said I, detaining them. Let us remain together until we are out of this block. As you please, sir, Conseil replied. Some hours passed. I often looked at the instruments hanging from the partition. The manometer showed the Nautilus kept at a constant depth of more than 300 yards. The compass still pointed to south. The log indicated a speed of 20 miles an hour, which, in such a cramped space, was very great. But Captain Nemo knew what he could not hasten too much, and that minutes were worth ages to us. At 25 minutes past eight, a second shock took place, this time from behind. I turned pale. My companions were close by my side. I seized Conseil's hand. Our looks expressed our feelings better than words. At this moment, the captain entered the saloon. I went up to him. Our course is barred southward, I asked. Yes, sir. The iceberg has shifted and closed every outlet. We are blocked up, then. Yes. It's the end of the chapter. Woo! Okay, so as I understand it, they're in, like, the tunnel that they had made underneath the iceberg. And they can't leave out the front, like, towards the south, and they can't lead out the back towards the north. Or vice versa. So they, they're now trapped inside the iceberg, or under the iceberg. And the next chapter is called want of air so I guess things are getting dicey in the submarine um, if they can't get to the surface if you remember the way that the Nautilus um, fills itself with oxygen is it goes to the surface and fills up all its tanks and it has to do that oh, I can't remember how long it was like every 15 hours or something you know it can it can survive for a while with no oxygen they have like reserve tanks but not for very long so I guess they're in real danger of suffocating under this iceberg now exciting times I'm going to stop reading even though I mean that was quite a short chapter but I feel like we will pause on that exciting moment them being trapped under the iceberg and continue in the next episode to find out if they escape which presumably they do because Pierre's telling the story from some point in the past so presumably he doesn't die but who knows about everybody else? Great, I'm going to stop. And join me next time for the next episode of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea by Jules Verne. Have a great rest of the day.